Welcome to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta, and I am thrilled to welcome today Taffy Burdesser Ackner, one of our favorites at the Sunday Long Read. I asked Jacob Feldman, my co-pilot, how many times has Taffy been on the Sunday Long Read? Uh, his answer was, well, she's been on six times this year. Is that good enough? <laughs> I mean, it's been many, many times. I don't think anybody has been on our list more than Taffy. And uh, we are thrilled that she joins us today on the podcast. Taffy is now a staff writer, full-fledged staff writer for the Arts and Leisure section of the New York Times, as well as the Times' Sunday Magazine. Prior to that, she was a contributing writer for the Times Magazine, NGQ, The Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, The Hollywood Report. Cosmopolitan, Salon, many other publications, and ESPN, the magazine. So technically, on occasion, Taffy, we were colleagues. And so we welcome Taffy to the podcast. How are you? It's great to be here. Thank you so much. It's so nice to hear that I'm at least doing quantity. You were, <laughs> I'm not always so happy with my quality, but oh, I'm doing no, quantity. No. The, the quality is uh, fantastic. And, uh, and even this week, congratulations, as a full-fledged staff writer, you have your first byline in the New York Times. The title is The Tear-Stained Confessions of Sam Smith, which yes. uh, I'm sure you're thrilled about. Tell me about the piece. What does it feel like to be finally a staff writer of the New York Times? It is very strange. It is very strange um, it was particularly strange um, before I got to work on a story, meaning the orientation, the meeting people, the figuring out the software and the system. Those things were, re- I, I, I was very overwhelmed by them. Slack? I did not have Slack <laughs> in my life before this. And now when people say to me, oh, you're so productive, like I, I always thought, I don't know, maybe it's, Maybe I'm just a fast writer. And now I realize I just wasn't dealing with any of the things that people with jobs have to deal with. I've spent the entire morning trying to file expenses in a system. um, And it was kind of getting to me. It was kind of getting to me at first that like, this is a great place to be. It's the New York Times. You know, I'm from New York. This is a big deal to me. Um, And then three weeks after I started, just as I was about to lose it, you know, even though everyone was so welcoming, everyone was wonderful, I just wasn't writing. Um, a sum of money showed up in my bank account <laughs> and I hadn't had to call anybody and politely say, hey, I'm just checking in um, so that they couldn't hear the desperation in my voice over the large sum of money that they owed me. And then it happened again. And then it happened again today, Don. I see I see why people enjoy having a job. Right. You're not chasing people down for money and then money shows up and you haven't produced something in those two weeks. And you're like, wait a minute, th- th- right. this feels like a con, right? Right. Yeah. Although on the other end, I published yesterday and I did not have that same sort of like uh, impetus like in my sternum that was like, now I get the money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, you know, and it, and it's funny, I had to work so much to ensure that the amount of money I had coming in was constant, meaning I didn't need as much money as I was earning. Instead, I just needed to make sure there was always money coming in, which meant that five or six, I had to do five or six more stories a year than I needed to or wanted to because... I had to make sure that something was coming in. Camp 
was camp tuition was coming, school tuition was coming, the babysitter needed to be paid, all of these things. Um, in addition to the good sum of money my husband makes at his newspaper and that isn't enough for a family in New Jersey to to make it. Right. And as a as a freelancer, how do you know what to say yes to and when to say, you know, you've got to do this juggling act, but you were a freelancer for so long. How did you know, you know, what to green light and jump into and, and when to say no to something? That's a great question. There are some editors that I would always say yes to, um, particularly my New York Times magazine editor, my GQ editor, my editor at Matter, which is no longer a thing. Like th though, there's some people that I just knew that even if I did not really have the vision for why this is a good story, um, they knew me well enough to know that it would be a good story. Um, with other people, I was a I was a little bit more hesitant, but it um, it always depended. It depended if I felt like I could do a good story on something. It felt it, it depended on whether or not I believed that the editor really wanted the kind of story I could give them or that they only thought they did, meaning they enjoyed reading something I wrote in GQ. But then once, you know, if you were given a story in GQ, if you were given my Billy Bob Thornton story and the lead has maybe 400 words in it about margarine, <laughs> <laughs> would you be the type of person who would say yes? <laughs> or would you be the type of person who would say no? And I think that that it would never make sense to keep margarine in a lead right? most of the time. You just would have to really, I don't know, you would have to, but there was also times of year. There were, you know, it was well known that in April, if you asked me to do anything in April, I would say yes to it because April is when camp tuition comes due. And did this word get around among editors? Like, okay, Taffy, you got an assignment, go Taffy in April. That's that's the go-to time for Taffy. I don't know. I, I don't know if, I don't know what happened on the inside, but I did get some strange requests around then. And they were, it was always, absolutely, I will do that story because camp costs so much money. Camp and, and, and the way it's positioned in the year is to trick you into thinking that things were going well. And then you're hit with this crazy tuition for camp. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I most recently, there's something on stands right now. There's um, an, a story in Allure. I was asked this past April, can you please write a, a letter to your daughter about beauty? Now, I don't like writing about beauty. Um, I haven't always had the best women's magazine experiences. I find that a lot of my stuff gets neutered there. Um, I hadn't written for Allure in a very long time, and I hadn't enjoyed my experience writing for Allure, but this was a different editor, um, and, I, and I really liked her. And so I said yes to the assignment. I said yes to the assignment, and I signed my contract. I did not tell her that I did not have a daughter. Um, I instead just wrote it to my sons and hoped that that was okay because it's April and the camp tuition right. comes due. It's the camp tuition assignment yeah. you can find on newsstands now, Taffy's Peace and Allure. Uh, I love that. And what you know what I love about your answer the most is that you sort of would shop around for, you know, you had editors that you trusted, but then you would sort of decide, you know, and shop around of, okay, what is the kind of editor that I want to work for? What's the kind of assignment I want to do? I mean, there's a lot of control there, despite the, all of the economic pressures, I particularly really in April. Lucky. Yeah, yeah, I was really lucky. 
um, I had one a very a, like a very simple metric, which was that um, if ever an editor, it felt like they were trying to make me smaller. Um, I wouldn't work with that editor again because you just in this business you just don't make enough money for it to be joyless. Absolutely. Like even when you make that, I mean that's what was shocking to me. Even when you make the most money you can make or the most money adjusting for your gender, adjusting for all the things that um, that you don't that you don't really know about that are calculations. Even when you are doing this in at a high level, you still you know, you still have to, you still aren't making, you still have to work very, very hard to make a decent amount of money. And that is why, ultimately, that's why I took the job that was offered to me, other than the fact that it sounded exciting. And, you know, what I noticed was I was, I was doing well at this. I was prolific. I have no writer's block. I, um, I have a supportive family. I was able to take whatever assignment that I wanted. And still, I had to really struggle to make sure ends meet. Now, right. ends meet in my totally middle class life, which, you know, is not the same as, um, you know, just making my basic needs. But I didn't want to hit, hit my basic needs. I wanted to have a good life. I want my children to have a good life. I want to go on vacations. I want... Um, I want to buy a gadget on occasion. I want to, um, I, I, sometimes I need new clothes. Right. Maybe, maybe have a nice dinner every once in a while, right? Maybe yeah. I'll have a nice dinner yeah. every once in a while. Yes. How many pieces did you do in your most prolific year? Do you remember how many and which year it was? Um, I don't remember, but I do know that last year I published 103,000 words. Wow. Well, that's a book. And I, all, and, and I also wrote a novel. I also wrote a 91,000 word okay, so novel. Okay, so 200,000 words so, in a year is an incredible output. Yeah. That's amazing. I am I yeah. am amazed by it as well. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thank you. My my fingers literally hurt from the typing. And you're writing every night, every day. How many, you know, like what's your process when you're writing? I mean, you say you have no writer's block, which is remarkable, remarkable by the way, for listeners listening. I mean, we all most of us have a little bit of writer's block. You have a momentary pang of writer's block. You have a doubt, at least I do. Um, I know a lot of friends do. So to have no writer's block and write 200,000 words, how do you do that? How often are you writing? Well, I would challenge your assumption that you have writer's block. <laughs> I would say, what do you actually have? Do you have dread? Do you have insecurity? No. No, um, no you don't? Someone once told me this. Someone once told me, a TV writer once told me, there's no writer's block is the act of thinking about writing instead of writing meaning you don't always know what the next sentence should be sometimes you're just so you know i did a third edit this morning and i am exhausted from the material like i don't even know if it was coherent um but and i sat there just kind of staring but i don't know if that's the same as block what do you what do you experience don yeah i mean my block my block i think is more that i it's it's not that i can't write it's that i'm thinking a lot about what i want to write and the thinking is going on longer than i would like it to um you know i'm a firm believer you got to really strategize and think and um i'm a pretty confident writer once i know what i want to say but mm -hmm. the figuring out what i want to say and how i want to say it is uh, sometimes takes longer than i'd like let's put it that way me too. That's yeah. not, but I, that's not what I call block. No, I, call, I think you're right. I think that's I think being block harsh. block is like, yeah, yeah right. I think block and is like the same kind of word as inspiration. It, um, it ascribes something outside of your control. Mm -hmm. And I think that like the worst thing, that's the worst thing we could do as writers is to think that 
we didn't have control over what we did in the day. Yeah, exactly. And I and as a reporter, as an investigative reporter too, and I'm curious with, with your reporting, the type of reporting you do, if I have a day that goes by and it's getting like mid-afternoon, late afternoon, particularly if I'm really hunting for some difficult story to land some difficult story with a lot of new information. If I haven't found something out that's really cool and fresh and new by mid to late afternoon, I start getting antsy. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Is it antsy or is it panic? Or, well, panic sets in by dinner time. If it's dinner time and I still don't have a cool thing, yeah, because, you know, I mean, you're supposed to get at least one cool thing every day, at least one, and, and on a really good day, maybe four or five, six or seven. And uh, yeah, I, I do it. You start panicking. True. You start worrying. Like, you know, what am I doing wrong here? You know, and you blame yourself. You can anyway. I mean, maybe that's the fundamental difference between what we do, right? I I go in assuming that I will not get access and I will not find out information. Like that, I deal with celebrities who are under an obligation to meet with me, but no obligation to help me with my story or to be interested. Even though I, I don't only, obviously, I don't only do celebrity stories, but... I can never count on people delivering to me something that will make my story excellent. I mean, you have to remember also that I, my foundational stories were write-arounds and then, you know, my first GQ story was she, the, the, the subject fell asleep while we were talking. Like I, I had to come up with a plan B very, very quickly. Wow. Yeah. No, it, it's true. You have to, um, you really have to scramble, you have to improvise, you know, when you're putting any kind of story together. And you touched on something really interesting. It's expectations. So the expectations you have for yourself in the reporting process, if you, and, and I tell young writers this all the time, you have to have low expectations, right? You have to have low expectations of what you're going to find out um, because then you'll be pleasantly surprised. But by the same token, you, you also have to set pretty high goals for yourself. So it's a balancing act, right? As you're trying to find, get the nub of a story. Isn't that right? I couldn't agree more. I think that you have to assume that everything will fail. And I still have like a, a freelancer's heart, right? So what happens if you go back to your editor and you say this, this didn't happen? This right. didn't happen the way we wanted it to. Well, I would, I would suggest don't ever go back to your editor and say that. I would suggest find something great. Like, to, you know, there are concentric circles of stories. Go out and tell the story. I mean, if the subject matter was so interesting in the first place, there is always room to tell the story of the story. Um, the thing that made you interested in the first place and then the ways you were stymied in the second place. Completely agree. Now, being so prolific in the 200,000 words in a year, which, you know, maybe an indoor record that will stand forever. Um, <laughs> how, how come I'm not an yeah, athlete? Why am I not considered I mean, an athlete? That's just incredible. Um, I want to talk about your writing process because I, I love talking about this with writers. Sure. So how long does it take for you to sort of figure out the architecture of a story, you know, figure out the way you want to tell it um, before even the first, few words of your opening paragraph were put down in the computer. I think about it, this is how I do it. I think about it first before I do any of the reporting. I think what is, so that I know what to look for. I think what do I think the story is? I do a lot of profiles and it's very easy to think, well, I already know the story of this person, meaning I know the challenges of self-image that they have, of public image. I know what I think about this person. I've done enough research by now that I know what, you know, Sam Smith is a great example. 
that Sam Smith just could not figure out a way to say the right thing. He wanted to be, he wanted to just be a, like a singer who is gay. That's what he wanted. Like he wanted it to be no big deal that he was gay. He thought it was 2017. It, it, sh it should be no, um, no big deal that I'm gay, but he kept getting into trouble. So before I even met with him, having read, having read all my research, I knew that this was something that he already had a problem with. So I kind of know that the story is going to be about what he thinks of all of that and what we think of all of that and what like what his hopes are for now with a second album entering um, entering public life again. Um, and then when I sit down, the way I do it is at the top of the page, I write this sentence. I write, you know, this is a story about the subject, but it's, but it's really a story. Like I'm a big fan of before you write one word, you should know what is, what is really, what is the story really about in a way that um, relates right back to me, meaning I too have said stupid things. I too am always looking to sort of clean up. You know, like a lot of my stories, a lot of my profiles are not just about the person, but the thing I have in common with the person. Um, because I'm the other person in the room and also because I very, very essentially believe that I am no different than any other person on earth. Um, so I, I think, you know, what is this really about in a way that'll be meaningful to me? And it is meaningful to me to think about a time in my life when I was 25, um, which was a long time ago for me now, but where I, you know, you, you keep trying to get things right. And you keep trying and nobody can see your good intentions. I was a lot like that. So, so that's what the story became about. I knew what that story was about. It's about Sam Smith, but what it's really about is about trying, um, trying to figure out a way to be in the world that is acceptable both to you and to society. And what's so interesting about what you said, so I do this too, you think about this moment when you're vulnerable, right? That's what you're really mm -hmm. describing when you're in your mid-20s yes. and the world did not know how talented you were uh and how great you were going to be and really you were just right. you were believing in yourself and very few other people were and so right. and you and you rewind to that moment as you're considering whoever you're profiling i mean do you go back every time it's a, you, it, it, you... it could it could be last week and it's not really always it's not really i don't go back to the times that happen I go back to the times that happened to me in an, in as much as it helps me remember what those emotions are. So so that if my subject were not forthcoming, if my subject did not use feeling feeling words, I could extrapolate what the feelings are. I mean, I think I think that we're all very similar in a lot of ways. I think mm -hmm. that's the reason we all love the same movie trailers and the same music and the same, you know like I think that we all like the same things and we all have the same overall reactions to things. And I think that cele that I am a lot like celebrities and that I, I want to be liked and I want to, I want people to admire me. Um, and I want to be understood. I think that is the, the thing I have in common with them, which is also the thing I have in common with everyone else, meaning we're all the same. Um, and I think that it becomes much easier to think about a, a person, a celebrity who is now a person 
and then then you can have some kind of intimacy. Right, and, and oftentimes too, it's just it, it's a product of necessity right. that you have a limited amount of time with the celebrity. Right, you have two hours or oh, three yeah. hours, yeah, and, you're, and you feel under the gun, so you have to find ways to connect and get the celebrity to whoever it is, whoever you're profiling, right. to be comfortable and to trust you enough to open up. So that was another question I wanted to ask you: How do you get Sam Smith or any uh, celebrity who you've profiled to trust you in such a short amount of time. What's the what's sort of the tricks of the trade of doing that? It's a, they are very simple, and they are the same ones you and I are enacting right now. They are well, n- we're not in the same room, but they're eye right. contact. Yeah. Um, they are a willingness to listen. People can tell um, if you have a list of questions or if you are s- someone who has not yet made up her mind about them. Um, and I really just listen a lot. I really just sit and I listen and I, the questions I ask are very neutral and allow, allow people to talk. And what I find is that when you signal to somebody that you are going to allow them to talk, they then will tell you what you need to know. Meaning they are never tricked into thinking that you are just their friend. They see your tape recorder. They know why you're there. There are probably four people in the restaurant who are ready to hood me and take me <laughs> off somewhere if if the person scratches their nose or whatever their signal is. But if you but once they begin talking, you can ask this question, which is why are they saying this thing that they're saying? Meaning they know I'm a reporter. What is it that they want the world to think about them? You never take anything they say as the complete and total story, but you can ask yourself, why would you be telling me this? Is it because you want me to think this about you? Is it because you want me to think this about you? And that's when you'll understand what that person's story is. It's, um, you know, it's funny, I, I never had a way of putting this, but Wright Thompson, I asked, I was teaching a class and he, I asked him, you know, we were going to read his Michael Jordan piece, his amazing Michael Jordan piece. And, um, and I asked him if he had anything to say. And he said, you know, the, the thing you can, you can always find out about someone is what is their gripe? Once you're with someone who is famous enough, they will tell you what their gripe is. They are trying to tell you. And sometimes you don't hear it because you're flooding them with so many questions. But if you ask a bunch of neutral questions, if you ask, um, one of my favorites comes from the journalist David Hockman. Um, you know, what is your, what did your childhood bedroom look like? That, that I often ask. Um, and that played out really well in the Sam Smith story. Um, he had gold walls and a red silk duvet and he wore mascara. And so he would fling the clumps onto the gold wall. And it made this like kind of beautiful impression in my head of this boy in a 700 person village in England who had gold walls. And he t- and then, and then he told me what he wore to school, um, which was like a pageant strip of flowers every day. And when you hear that, you can kind of understand, oh, this is why you thought you understood what it meant to be a gay man, because you were the only gay person in your 700 person village. And you thought, hey, you had it the worst. So here's your message to everyone else. Let's just, let's just blend in. Let's just be ourselves and, and we'll be fine. And it was only when coming, um, coming out to the world as a public figure 
that he and hearing the reactions of people that he understood that that wasn't really that wasn't really the the best approach which is something you're always learning when you're that age right yeah for sure and and also you had the benefit of sam smith speaking in such you know impressionistic colorful language with these incredible details which of course as, as we know details also are so important it's always like a gift when somebody you're talking with and you ask a question like that about their childhood or something and then they, and just tumbling out of their mouths their mouths are these incredible details that you don't have to circle back for later right to kind of really make the story come alive and sam smith certainly did you that favor as he gave you that great answer i think you you ask the detail question right then he's, he's you know um, I had gold walls. What kind of gold was it? Was it like a shimmering? And that makes it a conversation. And they're very excited to share it with you so that you don't have to do that weird follow-up where their hand is to their forehead and they're saying, oh my God, did I talk about my gold walls? <laughs> that was terrible. What is she doing with my gold wall information? That's always the problem with fact-checking. Like, what is she doing with that detail? How important is empathy in getting somebody to be to trust you and to, and to open up. I mean, I think it's the only thing. I will never yeah. do a Skype interview. I'll never do a phone interview. Mm-hmm. You have to be looking at someone and they have to see your facial expression. You know when somebody's listening. And I read all of these, I'll say this, I read all of these celebrity profiles where there's this weird entitlement. I mean, I don't blame the journalists who have to go into a, um, uh, what's it called when it's just like one after the other after the other? Oh, we call it we call it the car wash at ESPN. But yeah, it's yeah, yeah. That's a Bob Lee <laughs> I love that. Point, I love that. Uh, phrase, which is actually on the wall uh, in, <laughs> in one of the studios there on the campus. Yeah, it, it's, it's basically like funny. a cattle call where they're just sitting there and they're doing one interview after another, one yeah. after, and then you have to get your. And I, by the way, and when I did my couple of sports stories, and I was in locker rooms, and I would hear the questions. Everyone has to get like a quote. The way you extend the game is by getting a quote that can live on and get picked up everywhere. And I and I totally understand that. Um, I'm not good at getting those quotes. Some people are great at it. I am good at listening to a whole story. Um, but I see that sometimes in regular feature cover stories, you see a frustration from the writer who goes in expect like. Well, here's the bargain. This person did not, um, this person, I asked her about her husband. I asked her about her sexuality. I asked him about his dog and he would not answer. Like nobody here, like going in, imagining that you've given someone the cover of something and therefore they owe you anything other than their time is really the worst way to go. People need to, you need to signal to them with everything that you have that you are listening. And the best way to do that is by really, really listening. And to know that like, there are a couple of things you really wanna talk about, you know? Tom Hiddleston, I really, I, I wanted to bring back, like, I wanted to know what had gone down with Taylor Swift. But I left room for the fact that I, I might not find out and if I don't, or if he doesn't want to talk about it, um, in fact, his publicist right before I met him sent me a text, like he was walking toward me and there was a text that said, by the way, he doesn't want to talk about his personal life. <laughs> and I shut off my phone then. I was, it was basically, oh, sorry, I can't hear you. I'm going into a tunnel. I can't hear you. 
but people leave room for not wanting to tell you anything. You have to, like, just like in your life, you have to earn the privilege of people confiding in you. And when you do earn that privilege, both in your life and in an interview, it's an extraordinary privilege. It is, it is, you can't believe how, how lucky you feel that someone will sh- share something with you that's private because it will change you too. It'll, you're not just doing your job, you're changed by every interaction you have in the world. Um, sometimes I think, especially as a mother, and especially as someone as busy as I am, um, the only time I am ever really in a moment is when I'm doing an interview. My phone is off. It's the only time my phone is off. It's the only time I'm not also checking something else. It is, and it, that's very unfortunate for my family, for my friends. Um, but I, 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 like all the other people, live this modern life, and I still get to have these amazing interactions with people I just met. Yeah, and and because they're, we're constantly distracted by the phones, by our crazy lives at just, you know, a breakneck pace. When a celebrity or whoever you're interviewing, it doesn't have to be a celebrity, it can be anybody, find somebody who is really listening, like the world is shut off. And there's also empathy. And there's really interested, curious questions, well informed questions are very important. You talked earlier about how important the research is before you went in to see Sam Smith or anybody, and it really is, then they respond. And I, I've had the same experience in, in my career. It's, it's, it's enormous. It's huge to see that, like, wow, this person really lis- right. is listening. They get it. And, and they do. Um, many times uh, people you interview will seize the moment to unburden themselves of something that they feel is either not being covered right or being ignored or they're right. – Exactly. They see you as someone who is going, oh, here is my chance to tell, to get the story out. Yes. Yeah. The, the, somebody who feels misunderstood and you can, you can sense that pretty quickly. Um, and right. many of us feel we're misunderstood in some way. And once you sort of figure that out, that's the sort of string you can pull that really will unravel Um somebody you know somebody's really es- their essence as you're trying to do a profile and you're and you're you're great at that so i wanted to ask Thank you on the sam smith story mm-hmm. taffy that i love so your lead first of all you're great at leads and i want i want to pause here a second and say <laughs> you are really the master of leads i mean we all think we are the first piece of yours that I, I i sort of recognized your enormous talent and you did many stories prior to this but this is the girls fight out story you mentioned oh, matter before that. that was published by matter um, and I think it was in the Sunday long read, right? It was, we, we, it was, we it, it was. Yeah. And I was so proud because it was a sports story. I think that's, that's how, yeah, that's how you found That's me. how I found I you. Think. I started speaking your yes, language. Yes, you did. Huh? You finally were speaking sports. That's right. I only pay attention to sports now that I'm at ESPN and I happen to read the story. No, but it was, I, I just want to read the lead because I love this lead. And this is, and I want to ask you about the lead because this is, this is a sure. taffy type lead. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that in a second, but I want to read the lead to our listeners. Listeners. Past a billboard of women in bikinis shooting machine guns. Past a billboard that features a man who can help you cure your addiction. Past a target where all those pictures of shoppers exercising their open carry rights were most certainly taken sits the ultimate fighter house. 
It's a housing development rental, the color of its surroundings, desert on desert, a block without refuge or shade in suburban Las Vegas. And it is where the new season of The Ultimate Fighter, the UFC's flagship reality show, is taped. This season, its 20th, would feature TUF's first all-female cast. I love the sort of laundry list ticking off, you know, uh, aspect of it, of that first sentence. There's two semicolons separating those those phrases that I read. Um, and, and the cadence of it is wonderful. And I love the fact that what the story is really about is this all-female cast of this particular show you don't get to that until the last three words right so tell me tell me about that lead and when did when when you were doing that did you sort of figure out that was going to be your lead that was going to be the first image you wanted readers to take away for that story so i grew up in new york um but i grew up in a very religious family and what i've taken from that is that um i'm very very i grew up very sheltered but did not realize I was sheltered. Meaning I thought I was in New York. I I'm, I'm, I turned 42 last week. I'm still so easily shocked by the way other people live that I think that the best thing you could bring to your story is a kind of noticing that you're noticing that. Um, I was in a car with a public, with one of the publicists from UFC. She was talking about how she happened to be in love with this journalist who covered UFC, but the journalist's boyfriend is just, the journalist's girlfriend is like horrible. And one day maybe the journalist is going to see that. And she was just going on and on. And I couldn't stop looking out the window. Like, look at all of this crazy shit. Look at this billboard. I lived in LA at the time and all I saw were billboards for upcoming HBO shows um, and upcoming Fox shows. And, you know, every now and again, like uh, a Coca-Cola billboard. And these were crazy. And you also, you have this challenge, especially all the, all the writing on Vegas has been written, right? Like Vegas is a place yeah, we like to yeah. go and write. And so if you can get very, very micro instead of macro. I also had a, st- a story earlier that year um, that took place in Las Vegas. In fact, I found the UFC story um, while I was there, while I was in Vegas on the Britney Spears story. And I had written a lot about like why Britney Spears and Vegas were perfect for each other. So I had really like had very little left in the tank to say about Vegas, except that I certainly did because I got back and I was like, oh my God, the suburbs, these are what they're calling the suburbs. And I could not believe it. And it was kind of a play on the strange sort of straight weather lead that you read a lot of like, in a house at the corner of the cul-de-sac on a rainy Wednesday, um, I thought, what if you just like, if it was just a litany of the crazy things you pass to get to this house, which would somehow situate the house exactly where you needed it to be, because it's such a high-strung place, Las Vegas. Um, And these women were so high-strung themselves. I mean, these were women who were not just uh, UFC fighters, but they were, um, they were like uh, pioneers. They were the first women to be doing it, right? They were like in, they were like in the generation of Ronda Rousey, and and 
and yeah, I felt like you needed something electric and crazy and sort of distorted the way Las Vegas was and the way the women in this these this house were. They like really were falling apart by the time I got there. The thing about it I love too, Taffy, is it has it has a motion to it. Um, and great writing is not just great details, but also takes you along. There's a momentum to it, and um, you know it's 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 striking. And you know there's a momentum to your Sam Smith story that will be published Sunday. You know in the newsletter and and at the New York Times. Oh, glad to no, hear. Thank you for yes, not making notice, me wait that out. <laughs> that's right. No, notice I mentioned that the news the newsletter first before Please the New do. York Times. Will hey, be I knew I was in the New York Times. I did not know I'd made the newsletter. Thank you very yeah, you much. You made you made the newsletter, but. It, the, you do the same thing. You have that sort of laundry list aspect, um, um, which is kind of a bland way of putting a kind of really cool device that I know you like to use. So um, the same. I mean, that's a little different. That was. That it was is a little me. different. This is more emotions. This is were, this is oh emotions, right? Yeah. This is. Let me just quickly read a little oh, bit sure. of it for, sure, for sure. listeners. So, so your lead here is: this is a mostly complete inventory of the times that sweet, sad Sam Smith cried over the course of two hours on a couch here at the Chateau Marmont Hotel on a recent Friday morning. And there's a colon. He cried when he talked about the house he grew up in, when he reminisced about a crush who turned on him, when he talked about his first voice teacher. He cried when he talked about writing Prey, a song from his new album, The Thrill of It All. He cried when he talked about the children he met in Mosul, Iraq, on a recent humanitarian vision. And and it, and it goes on. You have, And you... The verb cried, I think, is nine or ten times. <laughs> Whoops. No, no, no. But it, it works wonderfully. And it and like all of your leads, it, it hooks you. And I was instantly sort of, okay, I'm, I'm all in. I'm, on the, I'm in the Chateau Marmont, which is one of the best hotels in America, by the way. Everybody should go there at least once. Absolutely. And, and drink wine out in that courtyard. Yeah. Um, but I'm on the couch with Sam Smith. I'm all in. He's opened up. In so many ways, right. and and you've done it, I think, in a really cool way. That thank you, that, you know, and and so my question about that is, when did you know that was going to be your lead? So as you, as he's weeping, maybe the third time, or was it the third or the fourth time? As he was crying, you were like, okay, maybe this is how I lead the story. It was mostly. It's like whenever any man cries, I'm always like, is that crying? Are you crying? I can't believe you're crying. And then I realized it just kept happening. Then I was crying with him because of my Pavlovian empathy response. And oh my God, I cried the whole time. We cried the whole time. And we, and also there was something very special about him, which is that only one big profile, two big, one big, there are a couple of Q and A's, but one big profile exists of him prior to this. And that's very rare for me. By the time I get anybody, usually they have been very burned by the press and I have to spend at least 20 minutes reassuring them in any way that I can that that I will I will not to the best of my ability I will not burn them he has not been burned by the press and so he was all in and he was young and he had had not yet shut down or seen this as a chore he was so excited to be there and there was something about his excitement that was that was that kind of allowed me to be my best self with him and not have to deploy tricks or or do too much signaling instead i could just be there and i'm a very very easy crier as as many many people could could tell you and i i just was all in with him and it was like a kind of crying and laughing because we would laugh about how much we were crying um i did not realize it was going to be the lead yet though i i 
was very panicked about this story. It was my first, it was my first story. Um, as it was staff, my first as a story as a the, staff member, with, but my first for arts and leisure. Right, with the checks an, coming every two weeks. Right? I know. I mean, the checks are one thing, but it's important to me that the, that the work that like I, it didn't look like I was worried it would look like I'd sold out. Right. Um, I, it was, it, it was, it was a new editor for me, Saya Michelle, who is wonderful um, and used to run spin and it's been at, been, been at um, the times for a long time. Um, but you know, I, it just takes, I just don't, I did, I really wanted to do a great job. Um, and I had never written this short. That's the other thing. Like this is, this was um, 3,400 words. It was supposed to be 3,000. I don't think I've ever filed anything less than 4,500 words. And so I kept thinking, how, how can I be most compact? How can I be, how can I like get everybody, how can I fast track everybody to what the mood was so that I can take them out on the other end um, of the story? And so that it was important to me that he come off as sincere because he was, um, and that his tears not come off as cheap, that he come off, as, that, that the story explain that the reason he makes the music he makes is because he's devastatingly emotional. I have been there. I write the way I write because I'm very emotional. Um, so it was, it was, I, t I toyed around with the lead. I'm still not sure I did it the best job because there are, you know, he loved the story. He tweeted the story. In the, in the comments, you see that a lot of people think I'm mocking him. Um, either people not familiar with my work or people who, and, and therefore don't know that I would never do that people who um, um, people who can't understand why you would make a list like that with and it not be making fun of somebody but through the prism of him liking it like say on Twitter people really once once they understood that he endorsed the story um, they were free to understand that they were with somebody who is like him I mean he is this great thing I feel like all I see are girls walking around wearing t-shirts that say, sorry, not sorry. Um, and he is a reminder that it is still very heartbreaking to be a certain age and to not know how you end up romantically and to not know who you end up with and not to know like how people are going to receive you. And I just love this idea of him being the kind of guy that like you can play the whole album you throw yourself down on your bed, crying, play the whole album through. I promise you there won't be one song on it that interrupts your, your, like, your, your sorrow. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, like, really love the Kesha album, and I really get into the song Rainbow. Um, and it's so slow and beautiful. It's this ballad. And then right after it, if you don't like jump on your Spotify quickly enough, there comes a like a fast paced country song right after it. And it's very disconcerting to me. Like I, I really like a nice uh, a mood. <laughs> Did you play the album while you were writing? Oh my gosh! I yes, I I played it thousands of times because I, what I wasn't sure what to make of his music. I didn't know who he was very much, and I felt like you can't write any of these things until you understand not not 
there are two stages. Like the first stage is you have to understand at least why other people like this. So I interviewed a couple of people, fans of his, and said, why do you like this music? And then the ideal place you could get to right at, before the interview is that you like it too. Because you shouldn't write about anyone whom you do not understand enough to know why he's famous. Because fame is like the ultimate democracy, right? Like we, we the people decide who becomes famous. Oh yeah. So if we're, we're deciding that, you're, you, you as the writer not knowing it, it will come out in your writing. You'll look very cool and above it all and people will hate you forever. Yeah. And they should. Because like you had no business writing about it if you didn't understand it. Yeah, you have to have, you definitely have to have an understanding and appreciation of anybody before you approach them, or at least at least a sense of them. And that comes with you know with research and not just research from clips, right? It also comes from what what you did. You reached out, you talked to fans. What what is it right. about Sam Smith that touches you, and it helps you get an understanding even before you decided maybe that you like the music yourself, right? You right. Ha- yeah, you have you have to have that appreciation. And I'm I'm stunned that there are some people that will go into an interview who are journalists who don't do that kind of homework. They'll wing it, and you're just you're putting yourself at an enormous disadvantage when you do that. Right. And they can, everyone can smell it. Yes, exactly. They can totally smell it. Um, and, and if you really are that authentic and, and you know what you're talking about, they, they, they do sense it and they respect it because they don't always see it. They don't see it that often, actually. You'd be surprised at how rarely that happens. Now, you mentioned, um, some of the criticism about the story. Uh, online. I happened to notice that too when I was looking at the story uh-huh. this morning. Um, I saw one of the comments said, pure snark, hoping this would, yeah. I, I love this, hoping this would be journalist got the assignment before the hack job was written. Um, somebody else called me condescending that you were mocking this gifted young man. No. How important, right, of course, you're like, what? You know, then, you, And you, you know what it means, Don? It means that I failed. Like, I know that we don't listen to the comments, we don't read the comments, but if anyone can read it that way, it it failed a little well, bit. Well, it fa- I'm proud of this story, and it failed a little bit because it did not convey, it did not take other people's cynicism of reporters or of or or of tones. I mean, I also try to speak. I also try to my my favorite trick is trying to speak in the tone of somebody that I'm writing about. And he was very young. And so, I, you know, I threw a literally in there that was not literally, there are a couple of things in there that is like, the laundry list was like a breathless 25 year old laundry list. Right. And I failed a little bit because I didn't pull it off. I, my favorite comments are the ones who address me as Mr. Ackner. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're being, I you're, wanted to write back. It's Mr. Brodesserac. T- 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 <laughs> you're being so much harder on yourself than I am. <clears throat> I'm very quick to dismiss comments. Even if I, first of all, I, I rarely read them. And it's hard to troll me on Twitter because I often don't really care what people say to me on Twitter. They're constantly trying to, you know, lure me in. I mean, sports people, my yeah, God. Yeah, they constantly are trying to lure you into some fight. I still have Patriots fans furious at me for a story I did in 2015 with Seth Wickersham. <laughs> and they, and they, they remember it two years later and they constantly want me to just fight with them. And I just I just don't go there. Um, but I think you're being overly hard on yourself. You, you know, maybe you did fail in a small way that person, but it's impossible to connect any piece of writing with every single person who reads true, it. True, you know. absolutely yeah. true. But 50 people, like the fact that all of them don't have the same they are all this kind of group of people who did not 
see that he liked the story. And the fact that that was necessary for people to understand that it was uh, the spirit in which the story was meant means that I I could have insulated it from that a little bit. I'm going to think about it a little more. I'm going to think about like where exactly I lost people, where exactly they thought that. Um, Because I think, again, like if anyone who's reading this is reading this because they like him, like why would I derail, why would I make you feel bad about the time I got to spend with someone you like? Unless that person was a bad person, which happens all the time. Yeah, but there's so much, as you know, cynicism now. I mean, with fake news, I know, you know echoing I know. in people's ears constantly. Con- they're, they're, so frequently, people are looking like, "Well, what's this writer's agenda here?" And, yeah. and 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 like you talked about earlier, there are some profile writers that they show the scaffolding of stories of all of the things that a particular person didn't tell them, so they could prove to I don't know maybe their editor that they asked the questions that weren't answered, which I also hate. By the way, mm-hmm. when you said that I was nodding vigorously. Um, but you know, I think that just there's, there's so much disappointment. Um, among people because they've been programmed that way to um, disappointment in journalism because they've been programmed that way that when they see a story even about somebody who they love they're just they're they're girding for a fight and they're looking for some reason to not like it so again I you have to sort of discount it although I do salute yeah I guess I no but Taffy I was gonna say I do salute though your thinking constructively like well let me go back and look here at maybe some of the things I did that maybe press those buttons and maybe even the chameleon like way that you tried to have in your some of your prose of being that young and that young person who's vulnerable and with the literally and some of those choices you make because I've done that too in some of my writing I've sometimes yeah. tried to to do that and it and more often than not it works but it but it can backfire with some people that just don't see it for what it is and don't appreciate it for what it is True. I mean, the, also, I, I I do believe the story was, I want to be clear, the story was a success in that it accurately conveyed his point of view in a way that makes him feel better. Meaning that there is some sort of service in that, that like, he feels heard. How often does a guy like this get to feel heard? Um, he felt heard and his fans really enjoyed it. I just have to think about it doesn't bother me that there are 47 people who chose to write to me, um, or more accurately to my father, um, to ask, <laughs> to say why, like what they, how they felt. I, I, it, what bothers me is that I wonder if they, I have to wonder if they have a point. Like I have to wonder if there was a way to read this that I do have to t- take into consideration that there, this is how people read now. And I also think that, you know, I don't, I, I, I remember I, my first, one of my first stories that got a lot of attention, I read it, I, I loved, I loved the attention for it. Not, I loved how much people were talking about the story. I loved it. And I thought like, can that, can, I wonder, and I, <laughs> the thing I thought then was, wow, it's really nice when a story comes along that can do that. And then if you shift your thinking and you think, well, what if every story could do that? What if I make, like, what if I try to make every story Excellent. Like, what if I try to do that? What will happen? And I think very often I see some great stuff from certain writers. And then I then I see their follow up to that. And I think, but if you were able to do that first thing, why didn't you do it the second time? Yeah. Um, 
yeah, so that's what I think all the time. And I think that I'm very worried about becoming, I don't want to ever become complacent. Um, this, this is only a great thing to do because it's never a chore. It doesn't feel like a chore. Yeah, no, it's a great privilege that we both have to be able to tell stories yeah, and, yeah. and um, you know, every day is new and every day is fresh. And did you ever have a moment in a story where you did something was as it was happening, you thought to yourself, that's my lead? Yes. When Don Lemon mispronounced sorbet, <laughs> because I went in knowing that there was... Like we had to clear up some stuff about Don Lemon because I had already gone through all his clips and seen that like the things he was getting roasted for were not legit. Like there was no, mm -hmm. like, so I thought this was a good way in. Um, the, uh, the sugar daddy lead, which. Great story, the, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, and great lead. The sugar daddy lead happened because I was. It was my first story assigned to me at GQ after I went on contract. And I got a note from my editor saying, um, my, my, my wonderful editor, Devin Gordon, saying, oh, Jim, Jim Nelson would like to see, uh, or no, 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 the art department would like to see um, where how you're headed on this, meaning like how you will be, like what kind of story this is so they know what kind of art to start thinking about. Um, can I see your lead? And I was still so worried. Like I didn't, I hadn't written anything down. I was still interviewing people. I had just gotten off the phone um, on an, with an interview. And so I just wrote up this one paragraph, which, which, you know, Jim Nelson, the editor of GQ will tell you that it's like, he, he thinks it's the best lead I've ever done. Um, and it might be. Might be my might favorite. Be. No, no, it might it be. Might be it, it, it was it, done. It was done in a, a like in a panicked twelve ten minutes because I just had gotten off the phone with this guy Thurston Von Moneybags, not his real name, um, and wanted to um, and and had to get something out to show that I was alive and working. I was always so worried that people would think I wasn't working on the thing I was supposed to be working on. Um, so then that happened, and I was like, I don't know. I don't know how to, I like to, again, I'm against mystical ideas about writing. I try to create, make everything into a science so that you will know how to do this once you stop, like once you're stuck, right? Like, and this is something I cannot, I cannot figure out. Like, I guess a lead is the most distilled version of what you are trying to say. But I don't know, I don't you never know when you're seeing it. Sometimes I have to work so hard to make sure I don't write a lead that is the first thing that happened in the story. Because that's so, it's not just tempting, it's how your brain works. Brains work as stories. When people say to me, what are you working on? I tell them, here's the story I'm working on and the order in which I'm doing the reporting. Right. Even if it's not, that's not the best version of the written story. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, it, it, it's true. Um, I, I often... What will tell young people, you know, who struggle with, okay, what's the story about? It's just what you would tell somebody, a buddy in a bar over a beer about the story. Like the way, right, like what's the first thing you said? Yeah, what's the first? What's the first thing what, you said? When I got into the cab after Don Lemon, I called up my editor, and I had two pieces of information. One was that he had mispronounced sorbet, and two that he had. This was a fairly big deal that he was being accused of all sorts of bad things because he. Um, he had told a Cosby victim, like, 
is is there a reason you didn't threaten to bite bite his penis off when he forced you to do this? And people went crazy over that. Turned out that he himself had done that when he was being sexually abused when he was younger. And the um, and after he did that, after he threatened the guy, um, it, the guy never abused him again. So. Wow. But I told the sorbet thing first. Right. Exactly, and and so and that and that became your lead. You know, when you were describing writing that that very quick paragraph in a panic, you sort of reminded me of Tom Wolfe. You know, Tom Wolfe famously in his story, "The Candy Colored Tangerine Flake Streamline Baby," that was a letter to his editor. Oh, really? Literally. I didn't yes. know that. Yeah. So that piece was published in 1963, and he just he. he his editor said to him, explain to me what you want to say. And he wrote a letter and literally the letter from, you know, just took, took, took the, the deer so-and-so off the top was published. Um, wow. Yeah. And that's, that, those and were that, the days, huh? Those were the days. That's how the new, that's how the new journalism was <laughs> oh born. Oh my gosh. I know. Wow. I know. It's really, really cool. So I have a few more quick questions to sure. ask you. But, I'm sorry but if I, I cut I, you I, off before. I feel like I keep interrupting. No, 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 not at all. I um, didn't want to talk about No, this. I really want to ask you just your favorite story because, you know, just which story of yours did you love the most? Oh my God, that's such a hard question. It is a hard one. Okay, the, I'll answer with my Billy Bob Thornton profile, and I on, only because the way, um, only be, I will say it's my favorite because I it's I think it's my favorite profile, but it was published on November 9th. 2016 and very few people read it because we were just all consumed with um trump news at the time i was so upset that this would never see the light of day for unless you were like a dedicated gq reader uh because so much else was going on so there's that i really love the ufc story and the sugar daddy story put me on a map on the map in a way that was like really profound to me um and then this year i did this weight watcher story yeah i was gonna ask you um, about that piece that was like really it was meaningful for a lot of people and i think that um i don't know that and this story about ultra orthodox people leaving ultra orthodoxy but but the weight watchers piece blew it out of the water in terms of the amount of people that felt affected by the subject matter it was very very humbling and it would it i i kept i'm kept looking at the comments and thinking um, and like Twitter and all of that and thinking like, you know, say what you will about print journalism, say what you will about the state of the magazine, the magazine industry, but look what a magazine story can still do. And that like, that's, that just set me on fire for, for what I do. Like if I'm, I was ever close to burnout, which I don't think I was, um, I, that, that really, that lit me on fire. Yeah, it's intoxicating. Uh, you know, when you have a story that has big impact um, like that, it's you, you want to do it again. You want to repeat it immediately. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, I've been lucky enough that's happened a few times in my career. And, yeah, yeah. And yet, but, you know, but you want it to happen right away. Like for me, I mean, yeah. you, you talked earlier about not being complacent and it, it, it's true. I mean, first of all, we have just such, we're so lucky we get to do what we love. Yeah. Um, but, but part of the not being complacent is just you want that feeling again, um, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's just it's a, it, right. It's this great motivator. It puts jet fuel in your tank to uh, to try to do it again. And, and, and every time it happens, it makes me it makes me speak more softly. It makes me feel a thing that women don't often often get 
which is feeling heard by the world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So true. So true. It's That's a very nice uh, nice feeling. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so we have a mystery editor of yours that gave oh my you gosh. some questions. This is going to be a lightning round because we're, oh, we're, no. we're running out of time. So we'll call it the lightning round. Um, okay. So you don't know who the editor is. I I'm don't. just going to ask you a few questions that this ah. particular editor teed up for you. I'm right. sure they're fraught with all sorts of meaning. And maybe you'll figure it out like after the first question. Okay. So, <laughs> um, so, so uh, the first one is, what are your least favorite editor habits? Um, my least favorite editor habits are people who don't read the story quickly and don't respond to emails. Those are those as I became more successful became deal breakers for me. Right. And when you say um, quickly, how quickly do they does an editor have to read? What, what's your cutoff time when it's like not someone acknowledge like literally the only thing I require is the immediate acknowledgement of receipt and then being told when in the next three or four days, you'll be able to sit down and read it because there are closings and there are other things that they should do. But they but, but they also know how hard you worked on something and how nervous you are and how much their the story isn't really done until you hear if you did it right, you know? Right. So how much, how much on pins and needles are you when you're waiting for that first verdict? I, I, I'm a mess. I am. And then I do this horrible <laughs> thing after I hear back and I like if, 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 I hear back and then, and it's good. I reread the story. It's so obnoxious. I reread the story and I think, my, this is very good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and before that, I'm like, this is the, this is the story that ended my career. And do you, so Taffy, do you ever, when some, when an editor says, well, it's not very good, do you go back and reread it and go, yes, this is very good. Do you do that never, too? Never, yeah. okay, I'm like, so, that's how susceptible I am. I'm, okay. I read it and I'm like, what was wrong with you? Why okay. So, you so you take it that much to heart what an editor says, an editor yeah. verdict. Yeah. You don't, you don't challenge it. These are really intimate relationships yeah. for me. Like I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't mess around on these. Like these the relationships I have with editors are very intimate in this way in that like they they are going to see a story and not take credit for it later, I right? Will. Like they're going to, they're helping me do, like that is the mystifying thing. It is. That they will not put their name on this and they will only try to make me do my job better. And like, it's, it's shocking to me every time. It is the most selfless act right? maybe in the world. Yeah. Right? The, the editor gets no credit. None. They They have your back. Uh, my editor now at ESPN is a, is a guy named Chris Buckle, who is the best editor I've ever had. And oh, he is th He's incredible. He's thinking about, he's, he's protecting me from myself at all times. He always, every piece of copy he touches, he elevates. The story that we did last week, Seth Wickersham and I, about the, you know, the national anthem and the protests, and we were mm -hmm. inside the league meetings and everything else, that story came in Monday night, and Chris hated it. He didn't like our first oh draft gosh, really? at all. Yeah, no, just just he thought it was a mess. It didn't have a. How did he line. tell you he hated it? On the phone, um, pretty bluntly, um, Seth Seth and I were both pretty exhausted. I think Seth was even more tired than I was. Seth was really quiet, and I I was just like, okay, we can handle this. We mm -hmm. can do it. And we had to basically do a rewrite overnight by Tuesday morning because we were under the close of the magazine was Thursday. So we had 48 hours before the close, we basically overhauled the piece. I mean, it needed nut graphs. It needed more focus. But by Tuesday at noon, um, you know, pretty much almost all night, Monday night into Tuesday morning, the piece was 
incredibly improved thanks to Chris and uh, and Mike Drago, his his uh, assistant editor. And so yeah, I, I, but I you know when I was younger, Taffy, I was really immature. I when when I when a piece of copy was given to an editor and the editor didn't like it, I was like this. There's something wrong with the editor. Like I was not. That's because nearly... you're a man. I am positioned to think I have, <laughs> I have filed it wrong, and that I'm so sorry. Can I please bring you some cookies and and apologize a lot? Maybe you're right. Maybe it is a male a male thing. I mean, I would dig in at the New York Times all the time, and I would fight, and I would argue, and it would be a lot of expended energy that was needed to do the rewrite that was inevitable no matter how much of a tantrum I threw or how much pushback I tried, you know, to attempt against the editor's judgment. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've gotten much more mature about it. And, and, and what you said really made me think of it. It's that, that these editors get no credit. They're there for you. Right. They're, they exist in this world to make you look better and they get almost right. nothing for it. Except like, your gratitude you, and maybe some drinks. How, exactly. How could you? And I also get a Christmas present for my editors. Oh, you how do? Could wow. you, oh, I do. I do. How could you be upset at somebody? Like, his only job is to make it better. Right. Like, there is no other thing that he or she has going. Like, there is no agenda. But, you know, it's you're right. It's like your thing is like, get on the phone. Like, we have to turn this around. I always say that, like, I really hate compliment sandwiches until someone doesn't give me a compliment. What's a, what is a compliment <laughs> so, sandwich? Oh, it's it's OK. It's um, it's hey, thanks for it's really amazing how you handed this in on time. Um, um, everything is wrong with it. And it's the worst story I've ever read. It's really nice that you spell checked it. Yeah, yeah, that's the meat. The meat, <laughs> the baloney in the compliment sandwich is this is the worst piece of crap I've ever but seen. But then when I get a compliment sandwich, I say, "Don't give me a compliment sandwich. I'm a grown up." Yeah, no, it's the compliment sandwich. Yeah, I love that. I love that phrase. Oh my god, we use it all the time. It's the best. It's the total best. Oh, that's so funny. So, okay, back to our lightning round. Um, I think, the, by the way, I'm going to put a, a strong uh, stake in that the, that was a Devin Gordon question. You are not correct. I am no. so glad. Okay, you're <gasps> 0 for one. We're going to keep score here. So here's. Oh my here's, gosh. Yeah, here's the second one. Okay, um, is how, this person currently editing me? <laughs> Um, you know what? I'm not going to tell you that because okay, it'll narrow down only, the field. Yeah, we're not. Gonna, I only work one place now. Okay, exactly. Go, we're go, not going to narrow down the field. So the yeah. next question is: How much over the assigned length do you shoot for? <laughs> oh my gosh, that is an aggressive. That is an artfully aggressive question. Yes, I would agree. That is that assumes a lot about like that. I, first, I want to very be very clear. Um, is this was this Justin Ellis? No. Was it Mike Benoit? Oh, for three. Oh my God! What? This is great. okay. This is great, um, except devastating because the question assumes that I shoot for getting it over. I shoot for word count every single time, and I would say that maybe editors are not really thinking when they prescribe word counts. It's the editor's fault. It is. Yeah. Like the yeah. truth is, is that there are some stories that if you like. If every story can be a great sweeping epic, why wouldn't it be? I agree. Thank so, you. but th but this question and presumed. I'm not even paid by the word anymore. I, so I say that now as like a neutral citizen of the staff. Right. Word. Well, the 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 question basically, you know, signals pretty loudly that I don't think you've ever made a word count. Is that true? Is that a safe assumption on my part? Um. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you should ask that. But editor, there's a butt coming. Yeah, have I ever made? 
have I ever have has the editor ever correctly assigned a word count is a better way to um well I love that so all of this love we were expressing for editors and how important they are now I'm enraged enraged. now I'm totally enraged this this has to be someone at at, at ESPN uh no not necessarily it wasn't because ESPN I did do an egregious 12,000 word story off an already generous 8,000 word assignment which story was that um Bill May the synchronized swimmer Oh, yeah, great story. Story of the, the U.S.'s only male synchronized swimmer. But you know what? Has it ever happened to you where you've turned in a story far blowing away the story length and the editor's like, oh, I love it. You're right. This is the this is the exact length it needed to be. Has that ever happened? Yes, that's how I got my career. I was assigned 1,800-word stories. I was assigned 3,000-word stories. And I wrote the story I thought needed to be written. And I did it very genuinely. I did it. I didn't know the word long form. I did it. I did it because that's what the story required. I really believe that. Um, and I just am not succinct for all the ways I try to, there are a lot of flaws that I have. I'm not succinct and I'm not good at word count, which makes me think that like, I don't know, that maybe this I have to do other things so that I could continue to get hired. I file on time. I file spell check. I, I don't have any error um, corrections. I um, I mean, that's largely from fact checkers, but um, I file all in one font. You know how sometimes things can get away from you and you end up with a document with three fonts? All my stories are in one font. I'm sorry that it's three <laughs> thousand words over that is the secret to taffy's success <laughs> all of her stories are filed in one font now see it took us an hour and go. 10 now minutes on know. this podcast <laughs> oh my god see that's amazing that's amazing i can't believe i don't know who this is oh um <laughs> rayhan it's rayhan <laughs> It is Rayhan. Rayhan Harmansi is the absolute best. And she <laughs> she and I Tell the stories that she edited yours, which I think oh, is one of my favorite. Oh, the Clinton Road story. Yeah, um she just assigned piece. me a like you know I she was the editor in chief of Atlas Obscura at the time. Rayhan, please forgive me for not guessing you first. Um <laughs> Atlas Obscura and she um and she she said there's this place in New Jersey that has the longest haunted highway in America. And I was like, done, I'm on it, right? I had just moved and I was actually very excited to do a local story and to try to figure out my feelings about this new weird place. I'm a big fan of Rayhan. I'm the biggest fan of Rayhan. Rayhan, Rayhan's great. She she is our uh, former editor of yours who uh, helped us with the lightning round questions. Oh, she's it took the you best. four took you four guesses for I'm the record. I'm so sorry, Rayhan. Yeah, four guesses, oh, uh, but that piece is so terrific. And that lead, I'm going to read just a few lines oh. of the lead because I love that lead. Good, it, it, I it love start, that story. Yeah, yeah, it starts in a part of New Jersey where snakes slither slowly across a road, still coiled and yet somehow still moving. And a part of New Jersey where an insect that looks like a miniaturized bat sits on your windshield, menacing you while you make a sound that doesn't sound quite like you from inside your car. And a part of New Jersey with a disproportionate amount of roadkill in an already highly populated by roadkill state. In a part of New Jersey where your phone cannot, will not pick up any kind of signal. Here in West Milford in the county of Passaic lies Clinton Road, a 10 mile stretch of haunted highway. Greatly. Oh my God, that's just like the Las Vegas. Don, am I a hack? 
No, you're not. Oh no, I didn't. I never realized that. Yeah, well, I I had had mentioned it before, but admiringly, not it. No, come on, Taffy. It's it's great. It's wonderful. Put me out Um, to pasture. My tricks are done. (laughs) Oh no. All right. Well, this has been really fun. For me and, too. And it's a pleasure. Um, I'm a big fan of yours always. Well, thank you so much for saying that. We're huge fans of yours. I know I'm speaking for Jacob when I tell you that, you know, we love your work. You, I, I, you know, our readers know that. You have been on in the newsletter, I think, like nearly two dozen times. I mean, I'm not kidding. So, and you will again Aww. the Sunday. And so thanks for making time to do this. And I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, we got to get a beer one of these days. Please, right? please. Yes, I would love that. that. Let me know. Let's do that. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. We're going to be back soon. This is the great Taffy Brodesser Ackner. She's been wonderful. Thank you, Taffy, again, for all the time. Keep up the fabulous work. Can't wait to read your first New York Times Magazine piece as a staff writer. Wow, that's going to be so really much, cool. Tom. I yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. And, uh, and we'll be back soon with another Sunday Long Read Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.